from Kaiju Island. A show where a kaiju veteran and a kaiju newbie watch giant monsters movies and chat about them. I'm Andrew. And I'm Amanda. Hey, Amanda. What? I've got a fun little puzzle for you. I'm listening. So, A told B that C is his father's nephew. D is A's cousin. Wait, 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 wait. I'm getting flashbacks. I can't do this. Why not? That movie we watched this week is just... I can't. It's way too similar. We spent the whole movie, or at least almost the length of the movie, just trying to figure out who was related to who and what their names were. Or are you talking about Yongri, Monster of the Deep? Yeah, that's the one. Why did you choose this movie again? Well, we've watched two Godzilla movies now. Yes. Two very well-known Godzilla movies, for better or worse. (laughs) And we've watched two Japanese movies. Yes. So I figured, why not throw in a big curveball? We're definitely jumping all over the map here. We are. To, uh, this week we watched Yungari, Monster of the Deep, which is the first South Korean giant monster movie. Although there is some connection to Japanese monster making. And what year did this one come out? It was 1967. So they're a little behind the times. Uh, well, I guess. I guess if you're expecting all, all movies to start at the same time. Or within the same decade. I guess, I suppose. <laughs> you know, they were in the middle of the Korean War when Godzilla, the first Godzilla movie came out. Sorry, South Korea. <laughs> or maybe they had just finished it. I'm not an expert on South Korean history. Pretty sure that's our history, too. Oh, it had just ended. South, The Korean War just had ended 1953. And to be clear, this is the Korean-American War? The Korean War, yes. So that's also American history. Sure. I'm bad at history. (laughs) You're my history person, so this is really bad. Yes. What did you think of the movie? (laughs) I just, I want to say for the audience that when I asked you that, you froze in terror. (laughs) Your face froze in a, a mask of horror. It was fun. Was it? It it was a little frustrating because, like I said before, I spent the length of the entire movie trying to figure out people's names. Yeah. We'll talk about why that possibly was so frustrating. <laughs> and we paused it, I think, for up to 45 minutes to draw out a family tree. <laughs> yeah. We watched the first scene four times. Because that's the only time you see some of the people. Or hear their names. Or how they're related to each other. Yes. So, yes. But other than other than the mystery of how some of the characters are, are related to each other, what did you think of the movie? Outside of that, I think it was fun. Okay. I like the destruction scenes in this. They kind of hit home for me. They did a good job of showing how different people were responding to the emergency differently, which I thought was a lot of fun. And you see a lot more reaction shots than you do in some of the Godzilla movies we've seen so far. Sure, sure. I agree. I... When I first saw this movie, I thought it was weird. (laughs) I think you were not a big fan. I was not a big fan. I didn't like it at all. I know you considered it a slog. Mm Mm-hmm. I was not a big fan at all. 
And then I got the movie on Blu-ray because I'm a little bit of a completionist when it comes to kaiju movies and I want to get them even if I didn't particularly like them. And we watched that version of it. We watched the Kino Lorber Blu-ray. Kino Lorber? Kino Lorber. What is Kino Lorber? A company, apparently, that I've, that I've never heard of before this. That produces movies? That distributes movies. Okay. Yeah, they didn't make the movie. They just distributed it. But the Kino Lorber Blu-ray has a fantastic commentary for Yongari, Monster of the Deep, by Steve Rifle and Kim Sung-ho. And that turned me around on Yongari. Like, it... It showed me that this movie has, it's got a lot to say. It's got a lot of like really high quality stuff going on. It's, it's a really cool movie. And pretty much everything I'm going to be saying is from that commentary because pretty much all the information that can be found is from that commentary. The Wikipedia only lists the names of seven of the 10 characters that were in this movie. One of which was Yongri. Yes. And any information you can find on Wikipedia about the movie, like behind the scenes, lists Steve Rifle and Kim Song Ho as as the reference, because they're the currently the biggest English speaking academic source for anything about this movie. The movie was made by a company called. I have some training in speaking Japanese names, speaking some in pronouncing Japanese words. Uh, I have zero training in pronouncing Korean names, Korean words. I've seen maybe a couple Korean dramas. That's I, kind of the closest I've gotten. I've seen some Korean movies. That's my closest, yeah. So I am going to butcher these names. I apologize to everyone. I It's just the nature of the beast. But it was made by a company called Keukdong Entertainment, which means Far East Entertainment. We watched the dub for the movie because as we're going to be talking about in a little bit that's the only version of the movie that exists which i interpret it as they're all doing british accents but it sounds like you interpret it as them all trying to do bad asian accents yeah that was a pretty common thing at the time was for dubs of japanese movies and you know other other uh, east asian movies for the voice actors to be told to do a more Eastern accent. It's not great. Not great. Which is the polite way to put it. Yes. What do you know about South Korea? I know that at one point they split from North Korea. Yes, they did. The Korean War influenced this movie a lot, obviously, because it has a lot to do with Korea as a whole. North Korea, South Korea were both created in the Korean War. Just like Godzilla 1954, World War II influenced everything that had to do with it, Yongari is subtly very influenced by the Korean War. However, instead of trying to illustrate the impacts of war like Godzilla did, Yongari tries to show what Korea could do if it rises above war. Did not get that from the movie, so you'll have to point that out to me. Yes. It, basically, one of the things that this movie is trying to do is show the world that Korea is capable of handling things on its own. You don't see anyone in this movie that is non-Korean, which is very weird for 
a giant monster movie in the 60s. You don't you maybe you maybe don't know that because you haven't seen monster movies from the 60s on the show yet, but most monster movies from the 60s you're going to see in military scenes and political scenes you're going to see Americans there and you know you're going to see people from across the world taking part even if Japan is the you know the one leading the charge because they want it to feel like a global initiative that makes sense and I would say that that's probably a similar theme to other Korean things I've seen you tend to get a lot of self-sufficiency all the characters do tend to come from Korea and they talk about like the richest people in the country or they talk about Korea without the world the rest of the world really existing sure the Korean War's unofficial end was 1953 South Korea's rebuilding process was incredibly slow by the time of this movie was being made it was basically a third world country it was super duper poor we'll talk about how it was represented in the film but it was it looked very rich, very wealthy. Everyone in the movie looked very wealthy, basically. I can see that. And when we think of South Korea now, what do we think of? We think of pop stars, and we think of technology. We think of cars and things like that. So we have to remember that this was made in a very different South Korea than what we know now. South Korea now is a democracy. South Korea then was ruled by an authoritarian ruler, and then the last thing I want to say before we get into it is that during World War II and before World War II, South Korea was under Japanese rule. And that rule was incredibly brutal and incredibly harsh most of the time. And so there is also some very subtle, we'll get into it when it shows up, but there's some very subtle anti-Japanese sentiment in this movie and in other movies at the time. But... They teamed up with Japanese filmmakers to make this movie. I didn't realize that. So that contradiction is a a very fascinating source. I wonder how the Japanese people working on the movie felt about that. Well, Japan had just started paying reparations for the terrible things they had done to Korea two or three years right before making this movie. So I think that maybe... That had some reason, some something to do with it. Makes sense. So before we get jumping into the plot, I just want to take a moment to talk about this whole family tree puzzle that we put together. This movie pretty much stars two families who are just joined by marriage between the son of one family and the daughter of another. Correct. And all the characters in those families are pretty important to the plot, I would say. Sure, yeah. However, they are very unclear about who's related to who and even what their names are. Yep. So I just want, for the sake of explaining things, to go over that first. Yes. To just set up the characters before we get into the plot, because then I'll be able to refer to people by name most of the time. And if nothing else, it will help illustrate your frustration. (laughs) Again, I had to pause the movie about half an hour in to write down a family tree and then argue over it for the next 45 minutes. It really was a logic puzzle. (laughs) Oh, this person can't be in this part of the family 
they're the brother of this person. Oh no, this family only has one son. But this one only has one daughter. (laughs) Oh wait, no, they're talking about the girl who married into the family is the only daughter now. It was very confusing. It's very not well worded. I think some of it is translation issues. I would very much agree with that. I wonder if they even had the name of some of the people when they made this translation. So there's two families. There's one family who we don't know any of their names except for the mom, whose name I'm pretty sure is wrong. So What what was her name? They called her Mitsuki. Which sounds very Japanese. And we did learn that a lot of these names were changed between the Korean version and the American version. My, My understanding is that when they translated the movie, they were going off of... They went off of the Japanese translation to make the American dub. Oh, that explains so much. So I believe that is what happened. I don't have firm evidence on that, but that is my understanding. So I'm going to call it the Grooms family. His mother's name, she's called Mitsuki. His father doesn't have a name, even though he has many lines in this movie and the groom doesn't get a name either that we found we we weren't we didn't we have no idea what it was it wasn't on the internet at all wasn't on the wikipedia imdb it wasn't on the the movie that we heard they never said it in any of the lines of the movie yeah so that's the groom's family he doesn't have any siblings is what we we determined there's the Yu family the father's name is kwang nam Mm mm-hmm the mother isn't named, but she kind of plays probably one of the smaller roles in the film. She barely does anything other than worry. Yes. And then they have three children. There's the bride, Kim Yuri, Her sister, we don't know whether she's older or younger. They might have said it, but I didn't catch it. Soon Ah. And her younger brother, Young. They call him Icho. And he's eight. I think they call him Icho because of the Japanese translation thing. But... From what we found in the Korean version, his name is Young. Yes. He he is called Young in the the screenplay. In the screenplay, he is Yu Young. And in the English dub, he's Icho, which is so not even close. And so that's the Yu family. There's the parents and three children. And then there's one more character who's pretty important to the plot. His name is Ko Ilwu, or Ilu. In this version, and he is a scientist who's dating Soon Ah, the sister of the bride. So that is our cast of characters. We don't have the names of three of them, and we're not 100% sure on the name of the fourth one, but that's our main cast of characters for this entire movie. Yep. Everyone else is not important. <laughs> or less important. Or less important. Il Wu to Ilu, I get it. I get that. Someone's just lazy there, I guess. <laughs> or Suna to Shuna. Sure. Maybe that's just a pronunciation thing. Yeah, but Young and Icho, that's my sticking point. Young and Icho. Don't like it. And we don't actually ever hear Kwang Nam's name in the movie. The only reason we know his name is because either IMDb or the Wikipedia page had a picture of the actor listed. Right. So now that we've established people's names... I can talk about them without having to say the mother and the father of the groom over and over again. Well, the mother and father of the bride over and over again. Right. I only have... 
So I have the names of all those actors. I can go through them real fast. Well, of oh, some of those actors. Ko Il-woo is Oh Young-il. Yu Young is Kwang Ho Lee. Yu Soon Ah is Nam Jung-in. Kim Yuri is Moon Kang. That's such a pretty name. And Yu Kwang Nam is Lee Soon Jai. That's the only person that I was able to find any information about. He is an incredibly prolific actor. He's still alive, still very active in Korean film. And to be clear, he was playing the father, like the middle-aged father of this 20-something-year-old woman. Yeah. In 1964. 1967, sorry. Yeah, he was born in 1934. So he was maybe playing older than he should have, but that's all right. But that's all I've got on the actors. So the movie opens with a panorama of space. We see the stars, which are like lights being pricked through a background. You can see all the the seams and the panels that make up the sky. You see the earth and the moon, which look pretty good. So I have a a secret piece of information, a secret piece of Young goody lore. Already? I do. I know why they show space first. Is he from space? According to the screenplay. So the screenplay is one of the only things we have of the original Young goody that tells us how this movie was supposed to originally be. Minus the dub. Tells us, you know, how the dub kind of ruins the movie a little bit. The screenplay says that Yongari was supposed to be a single-celled organism from space that then mutates into a giant monster because of radiation. I don't think that's how radiation works. No. I think that what we're seeing at this beginning portion is we're coming on. We are Yongari coming to space as a single-celled organism. I mean, the movie definitely has a very space theme to it, especially at the beginning of the movie. Sure. For no reason. No reason at all. Yes. They just needed to make themselves seem... So now I'm going to read into the political aspects of it. I think this is Korea saying, look, we can go to space too. Yes. Because they want to make the actor or the character seem cool. They want him to be a badass. Yes. And in fact, we're... Am I allowed to say... Bad derriere. <laughs> bad patootie. <laughs> a bad potato. <laughs> Who was it that used vegetables instead of curse words? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> After this panora- panorama of space, the movie cuts over to a wedding scene or the end of a wedding. You see the bride and groom driving off. We know that the bride's name is Kim Yuri, and we don't know who the groom is. He's unimportant, apparently, even <laughs> though he is in many action scenes. The couple's waving as they drive away. I just realized they're the only people in the car, so they're both looking back through the window as they drive away, which explains why they drive down the center divide. <laughs> they must have a driver. They don't, though. They they are never actually driving. He's driving. They show the camera through the front window of the car. Oh. 
and they had to pull over because they were itching. Spoilers. So as we see the bride and groom driving away, looking back over their shoulders as the car drives itself down the center of the road, we pan over to the family who's seeing them off. This is where we meet all the characters of the movie, for the most part, talking about, oh, my only son and only daughter who just married into my family. Giving all the clues to the logic puzzle. This is where we watched the movie four times. Yeah, we could probably say this part of the movie word for word. We're not going to. (laughs) Your memory is better than mine. It also sets up that Soon Ah and Iluwu are possibly in a relationship, but she does call him a robot. That would be like falling in love with a robot. And then he very understandably decides to leave at that point. I noticed that they apparently got married at a rocket launch facility. And I did not notice this at all. I was trying too hard to furiously scribble notes and figure out who the heck these people are. (laughs) All four times I watched it. But I wanted to bring up because of this that we brought, we mentioned that there's some space stuff in this movie. Very light space, space stuff. It's a pretty strong theme, at least for the first half. For the first half. The space program in this movie is pure fiction. South Korea did not have a space program until 1989. I did catch the name, though. Oh, what was it? NSRC. NSRC. That was just what's on all their shirts. I don't know what that would stand for. I don't know. It's probably something in Korean. But they were Latin letters, so I don't know. I don't know. Next, the movie goes back to showing the couple as they're driving away. A light starts shining on Kim Yuri, and she starts scratching. And then the groom starts scratching, and they jump out of the car in the middle of the freeway, parked right in the middle of the freeway, and start ripping off the outer layers of their clothing and scratching all over. They show a little boy off in the bushes on the side of the road. Don't know how he got here. Shining some sort of flashlight beam at them and laughing maniacally. <laughs> exactly like that. And Ilwu, who just left the wedding ceremony, pulls up behind them and asks what's going on. And he, he knows because it turns out this is his invention that that Kim Yuri's younger brother, Yong, has stolen from his lab and is using to cause mischief. And so he takes it away from him and puts him in his car, laughingly scolding him. Yeah, not not very strict. But telling him that this experimental ray that causes itching also causes side effects? Yeah. That this kid just grabbed from his lab without knowing what it does? Yeah, not it wasn't secured. The boy says, "But it was funny, right?" And he's like, "Yeah, it was funny." <laughs> um so the couple drives off to their honeymoon. And Ilwu takes Young to his lab to put the ray gun thing away and show him these robots instead. The next scene we see is the honeymoon. The couple, whose name we only know one of, yep. is in their bedroom. She's in her nightgown and he's sitting out on the balcony with the backdrop very close to the edge of the balcony. Staring at just like 10 stars. <laughs> they have a conversation about, oh, you're sick of me already. Yeah, it wasn't great. <laughs> and then awkwardly make out on the couch. 
when they get interrupted by a radio call from the groom's dad, whose name we never learn. So I would like to take a moment to point to talk about the awkward making out. Where she says, oh, no, you, and turns away. Yeah. And then they, like, he, like, kisses her ear, basically. (laughs) So this is actually part of a larger discussion about the movie. Like I mentioned, South Korea was under authoritarian rule at the time. And because of that, one of the things that movie makers had to think about was pleasing the government with their films. You had to make sure there were no political statements in your movies. So if you wanted to make a political statement, it had to be very subtle. And they had very strict moral code. So no kissing, definitely no sex. I mean, we didn't have an interracial couple sharing a bedroom until I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah. It it definitely is similar to the code that we had for a long time. And even then they had different beds. Yeah. The difference is that the code that uh, American films were under was self-imposed by the the film industry, and this is governmentally imposed. This was self-imposed to prevent the government from imposing them, though. So it's not so different. Exactly. And the, one of the other main tenets was that movies had to be family-friendly. They had to be family-friendly and encourage strong family bonds. Sounds boring. So that is a big theme of this movie. This movie is all about a family coming together, slaying a dragon together, essentially. Sounds like the tagline to Mulan. (laughs) It does. And it also is why one of your main characters is this kid who runs around with an itching gun and having no consequences for it. And just goes off to to mess with the monster on his own. Yes. Multiple times. Yes. And is encouraged. Yes. But we'll talk about the subtle political statements that are made when we get to them. So we hear that the groom's father, but there was a weird translation part here. The bride says, oh, it's just my father. So that was part of our puzzle problem. Yeah. The groom's father calls from and I'm putting quotes here, control, and says that they need the groom, whose name we don't know, to come in. He's the only astronaut who's able to take on the task they have. The Middle East is doing nuclear testing, and they need someone to go into space and monitor it. But it's only going to take two days, and he's the only one who can do it, so he needs to come back from his honeymoon right now. So... In the screenplay, the Middle Eastern country's name is said. Oh, which one is it? Arabia. What? Which is clearly meant to be Arabia. They say Arabia? Arabia. And what the nuclear explosion takes place in the Goma Desert, which is clearly supposed to be the Gobi Desert. No one's really sure if this is typos or if they're... Translation errors translation errors or if they're attempting to hide you know make some make changes so that they're not actual places no one's sure what the intent was here the other thing is at the time no middle eastern country had nuclear weapons so this is very prophetic (laughs) it feels a lot like america 10 years ago yeah 
Yeah. I think they just wanted to choose a place that had definitely had no nuclear capabilities so they could just be like, it's them. There's, it's not a political statement for us to say they're the ones doing nuclear stuff. So my question is, what are they planning to monitor from space? I think they just wanted to see a cool nuclear explosion, I guess. Couldn't you do that from not space? Not without going to Arabia. I just don't understand the purpose of this mission. It's to show a cool space launch. So they do a cool space launch. <laughs> <laughs> the... The father and Kim Yuri are in the control center while the groom, don't know his name Mystery again. Mystery man. <laughs> the groom is heading to space by himself. I really don't know why his wife is in the control center, but later her whole family is. So, you know. It's a family movie. <laughs> the whole family's got to be together. So they launch Rocket 7X and show a jet flying over a dry-looking desert and dropping a bomb. The Goma Desert. The Goma Desert, definitely. <laughs> and the Earth splits open. But the the mushroom cloud was pretty cool. Yeah. So we've seen it. You and I haven't seen yet. But in I have seen in other Godzilla movies or Toho movies how Eiji Tsuburaya would do a nuclear explosion. And the way he would do a nuclear explosion is he would take a substance like paint, something thick like that, dump it in water, and then just flip that recording upside down. That's so cool. Which I think that's maybe complicated, the, the process of flipping the film upside down. I'm not sure exactly. This, what they did was they just had some smoke... And they put some glass over on top of it. And it works great. Th- it looked really good. Yeah, I think it's a very clever, low-budget solution for making a nuclear explosion. And speaking of budget, I do want to real quickly want to talk about the budget for this movie. They they had one dollar. <laughs> essentially, they did. They had, I don't know exactly how much they had. They had 13 to 30 million won. Which I could figure out how much that's worth now, but nowhere I could find could figure out how much that was worth in 1967. It wasn't much, though. They had one dollar. Essentially. And I could find how much money they made in the box office. Or rather, I couldn't find out how much money they made in the box office. I could find how many tickets they sold. Because the information about this movie is not easily accessible. There's just not a lot of information. As we found. Yes. They sold 110,000 to 150,000 tickets for this movie, which doesn't sound like a lot, but there were not that many screens in South Korea. So was this only released in South Korea? This was originally released in South Korea and then was released globally. This was, in fact, the first South Korean movie to be released globally. It wasn't successful globally, but it was very successful in South Korea. That's pretty cool. Kaokdong Entertainment was able to obtain distribution rights through Toei Company, a company that we will be talking about a lot. Toei Company is a direct competitor with Toho. Is that why they sound the same? They Well, to, there's basically five major Japanese film companies. Toei and Toho, for a while, were 
two of the main big ones. Toei's, I don't even think one of them anymore. It's been Do they re- not exist? I think that all their stuff was bought up by Katakawa. I don't think that they're the same company, but they're it's basically been replaced by Katakawa. Sounds uh, familiar. Toei is most famous among kaiju fans for making Gamera. Hey, I've heard of that one. The the flying fire breathing turtle. The flying spinning fire breathing turtle. Yes. Hero to all children. So they were able to obtain the distribution rights through Toei Company. And they sent all their original copies to Toei for distribution. And then no one knows where the original copies went. We don't know if Toei... Obviously Toei got them. They didn't hold back any original copies. They didn't. That sounds dangerous. That's like not backing up your computer ever. Yeah. So we don't know... Toei says that they sent the originals to America for the dub. So it's possible that the they got lost somewhere in that process. It's possible that they got lost somewhere in the process of sending back to South Korea. And Toei didn't save any originals either? Nope. So because of this, we only now have the frankly very bad English dub of the movie. That doesn't have everybody's names in it? Exactly. And... Because of that, this movie has never been distributed in South Korea other than that first showing in theaters. That's so sad. Yeah. It's such an important Korean film, too. It is. It is. It, it's one of the first huge South Korean movies as far as ticket sales and one of the first major giant monster movies. And it, it, it really is an important South Korean movie, but we just have this terrible dub for it anyway there was a big nuclear explosion i think is where we left off in our plot synopsis and then there was radio trouble and then there was radio trouble and then it cuts to a newspaper (laughs) with the headline that the nsrc launched rocket they're having some radio trouble but it should be cleared up momentarily which implies that the newspaper Typed this, printed this, distributed this all within a matter of seconds if they expected it to be cleared up momentarily. It's just the slowest news day, too. (laughs) It's like, oh no, they're having radio trouble that will be cleared up soon. And the whole family's freaking out because they can't hear from him with no no other indication that he's in trouble at all. I think the only problem they can come up with is that he might land somewhere they don't know where. Yeah, they mentioned he might land in the ocean. The bride's whole family is there to panic with her mm-hmm. in the control room. It's a very supportive family. Finally, he comes through clear. I don't think anyone actually did anything to fix it. It just fixed itself. Yep. He got out of range of the nuclear explosion. Oh, that's clearly what it was. And Tsuna turns to Ilwu. And is celebrating with him. And then he says something to her that they don't have dialogue for. And she looks offended and punches him. Like, (laughs) jokingly in the chest kind of punching. And then turns away and celebrates with her family instead. So, don't know what that's about. Maybe he's mad about the robot comment. Understandably. But then they quickly discover that the epicenter of the earthquake is moving quickly towards Korea. Yep. We see the perfect landing of the groom and everyone celebrates how perfectly he did it. And he confirms the earthquake is moving northeast. He saw it from space. 
somehow. And I should say that the person at the control station, the guy who seems to be running this whole program, is the groom's father. Yes. No nepotism whatsoever. None at all. It's a family movie. <laughs> I, ne- don't, I don't mean it's a movie for families. I mean it's a movie about... Two families. Two families. The next scene we see is some sort of political meeting. There's a military guy with a lot of badges on him, a lot of medals, and a bunch of people in suits. One of which is the bride's father, the only well-known actor in this movie, Kwong Nam. We don't know his name because of the movie. We know it because of Wikipedia. Yep. Lee Soon Jai is the actor. They're all sitting around and talking about how the earthquake is moving in an unnatural way. We don't know how to stop it, so we have to get ready to minimize the damage. And they decide not to tell anyone until they know that it's going to hit Korea because they don't want to cause a panic, which to me always seems like the stupidest thing to do. But, you know, we don't need to give people time to get ready to evacuate. But as soon as they know it's going to hit, they're going to declare martial law. Which feels like... You remember when we saw in the original Godzilla movie scenes that felt like callbacks to World World War Two? Yeah. Just them mentioning, we're going to go to martial law immediately. Yeah, that seemed like a really extreme first step to take. Yeah, that seems like a a, a direct callback to the Korean War, I think. I can see that. So, of course, it does hit, and they declare martial law. They tell everyone to stop everything and return home. I put that in quotes. The earth starts splitting open, buildings start collapsing, and we see spikes or spines coming out of the fissure that's created. So, the spot where we see the monster first come out of the ground is actually incredibly important it isn't named in the movie but any south korean watching the movie any korean watching the movie would know exactly where this is he'll end up coming to seoul which is the capital of south korea hey i knew that one but where yangari makes land or he's digging he's always in land where yangari makes surface (laughs) is where he makes air yes where Yangari first appears. It sounds like I said that he farted. Where <laughs> Yangari farted. Terrible. Where Yangari first surfaces is Panmunjom, which is the northernmost South Korean village. The village that is just south of the border between North Korea and South Korea. It is the village that marks where the war ended. So, Yangari is essentially bursting forth from where the Korean War stopped. Like continuation of the war? Like a continuation of the war. And that fact alone means that this movie is political. So he is a embodiment of the Korean War. In at least in that fact, yes. Yeah. And he he does a lot of things that I think can can support that information that we'll talk talk about in a bit. It's not a perfect metaphor, obviously, because he does fight a child with an itching ray. 
Yeah, I think they just tried to have a funny moment that didn't go down very well. But he does have, there. there's political weight behind him that is kind of hidden if you are not familiar with Korea. I thought this was a really, it built a lot of tension that the first thing we see about the monster is just some spikes. I think that's a thing that is common in current movies. It was such an effective way to hint at the monster and give it weight behind it and give it... Yeah. It's like how in the first Godzilla movie, you slowly see the monster. Yeah. You always fear most of the things you don't understand. Exactly. And it brings more fear into it that they don't know what's causing it. They just know that it's big and that it has spikes. (laughs) It's an old trick that goes back to Jaws. Maybe even older. You take your time showing the monster. So people were there when the earth split and they see the spines come out and they got a picture of it and they were running away. They jump in a car and they're driving. And then we see a shot of their car tumbling down a hill completely (laughs) on fire. (laughs) For no reason. We don't know why it's on fire or tumbling down a hill. Nothing causes it. They just show them one scene they're driving, one scene they're tumbling down a hill in flames. Yes. Something must have been cut. Oh, that would make sense. Something has to have been cut from that. But I don't know what it would have been because Yongri hasn't surfaced yet. That's what I'm wondering is if things got shuffled around. Maybe. No, because they bring them in. The next scene is the political meeting with the groom's dad (laughs) talking about hearing a story of a monster associated with earthquakes, even though we haven't seen any indication about that they don't know that it's a monster the only people who know about it is the people who just went down a hill and then some soldiers bring in one of the men who's all bloodied and his perfectly intact shiny camera in the commentary they say this is the most ridiculous part of the movie (laughs) and i agree that he somehow survived and his camera is unscathed he survived this tumble down a very steep hill in flames. Yes. Um, so, Groom Dad <laughs> mentions Yangari's name for the first time. Yes. So, in response to them seeing the pictures, they say, it's a giant reptile. It's Yangari. Yeah. Or Yangari, as they pronounce it in the American dub. Would you like to know where Yangari's name comes from? Is it mythological at all? Because they do talk about it as if it is. It's a little bit, yeah. It's about half half that. Yongari's name comes from the Korean words yon, which means dragon. And combine that with pulgasari, which is a mythological creature that eats iron. That makes so much sense. Yes. Pulgasari, pulgasari, without the accent that I'm putting on it. I don't know how to pronounce Korean R's. Um, Pogasari actually has his own kaiju movie. Does he? Are we going to watch it? We will eventually, yeah. There's a North Korean movie called Pogasari. Is this the one that yeah. Kim Jong-il ordered? Yes. And I know we'll, we'll talk about this later. We will, we'll get to that. I don't want to get too much into yeah. it. We'll, we will get to that. I'm not going to go into it at all. But that is, you are thinking of the correct one. And that one was made about 30 years later. So there's Yongari, there's Pogasari, there's a remake of Yongari. I saw that when I was Googling for character names. Yep. 
So there's basically three monsters that are all loose, very, very loosely based around the same mythological creature. And when we're talking about that remake of Yangari, it gets so, so much looser. So one thing I did like that they did in this movie, that the characters chose to do in this movie, is actually tell people that there was a giant monster. They actually gave people useful information to prepare, which I appreciated. Immediately. And then they did say, the military is handling it, stay in your homes. So it did go along with the theme of the movie right there. Sure, We next get a compilation of police patrolling the cities. There's people getting ready. We see some police patrols and one of the cars stops and they see the side of a mountain collapse. And they say it's going to blow up. And then we see Yongri emerge from this mountain, which seems like not the easiest place to come out because it's a lot more earth you have to dig through instead of just coming out next to a mountain. But it's true. Yeah, yeah. we see Yongri for the first time. Yeah. What did you think of him? For how low budget this was, I thought he actually looked pretty good. He definitely looks like a knockoff Godzilla. Definitely. Well, I mean, that's just because he's kind of T-Rexy. That's because he's like kind of vaguely... Godzilla-y. He's a bipedal lizard. With spines. With three rows of spines. That's fair. I think the only difference is he has more of a snout than Godzilla and he has a horn. He, yes. He's got, he's got a big horn that glows sometimes. He's got some spines. They're not as big as Godzilla's. They're... They're no, they're very smaller. simplified. But yeah. he's got. How would you describe his eyes? He's got pretty simplified eyes. They don't really move at all, but he does have eyelids that move. So that was pretty cool. And they glow, which is cool. And then his mouth opens so wide. It looks like a snake. Yeah. It looks like he detaches his jaw. Yeah, he's got little fangies on his bottom. I guess they're tusks if they're on the bottom, maybe. I don't know how that works. Sounds right. Oh, and he's got thagomizers on his tail. Hey, I know what that is too. If you don't know what a thagom- what thagomizers are, uh, thagomizers are spikes on the end of a uh, tail. Which, if I'm not mistaken, are named after a comic? Yeah, the name came from a comic, yeah. It's like my favorite paleological term. The reason you think that this suit is better than you might expect is because they outsourced it looks like they just took a godzilla suit and then chopped up a few of the pieces and remixed them this suit cost them five thousand dollars which again i don't know what the budget is so i don't know how much that we can afford our own yongari suit (laughs) potentially i guess if we don't want a house (laughs) the suit cost them five thousand dollars it was constructed by x productions co-founder masao yagi Which sounds Japanese to me. Japanese person who was heavily involved in the Showa Gamera films. Masao Yagi specifically uh, worked on the first Gamera suit. Fans of both can tell. I don't know if how much Gamera you've seen. The tusks. Can see that there's a lot of similarities. I got the tusks. Both of them have tusks. Both of them breathe fire. Both of them, in fact, eat fire by just filming the fire backwards. And actually, the next scene is where we see his breath weapon for the first time when he's fighting off some tanks. Yeah. Uh, The eyes are very similar for Gamera and Yongari. So, Yongari was 
the design for the suit was made in Korea. They sent it off to Masao Yagi, and then they sent the suit back to Korea, and the director was very disappointed in it. I feel like I would be super popular if I could walk into a party wearing a Yongri suit. Would you? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Isn't it? Okay. <laughs> I would be the best bouncer. Sure. Where would you be a bouncer in a Yongri suit? Um, maybe when if Katie ever gets married. She did offer to be my maid of honor in a T-Rex costume, so I feel like it's only fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's true. So the director, when the director saw the suit, he was very disappointed. He wanted the suit to look scary and formidable. He's and pretty cute, though. He's, in fact, very cute. He's got <laughs> giant eyes and his mouth goes, Mrah! all the time. He doesn't make that sound, but he definitely looks like he should. <laughs> uh, but by the time they got the suit, there were not time to change it. I mean, they did outsource it to the Gamera people, who are the original knockoff Godzillas. It's true. So, you know. You're not wrong. Like, they have their own, they have their own good qualities, but you're not wrong. Now that we're getting into some destruction scenes, too, I wanted to mention one interesting fact about the special effects, which is that, you know, they're running on a very low budget. They had to take light bulbs. Specifically, this fact that I found was about the light bulbs. They had to take light bulbs from production sets from across the country for this movie. They had to take 15,000 light bulbs for all the sets used in this movie. Two-thirds of the available lighting equipment from all the studios in the country. Were they in the stars? Is that why? Maybe in the stars, maybe in the eyes of the suit. Definitely in the sets. A lot of those sets were really well made. You and I were complimenting that. Our biggest complaint about the the sets... Is that the sky is so close in the background that you can tell that it's just a backdrop. Yeah. We think maybe that the, the sound stages were just really small. And so it was really hard to make it, the backdrops, not look like a backdrop. So, of course, they have to bring it back to the family movie that it's supposed to be. This isn't a monster movie. This is a family movie. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> Elu's hanging out with the Yu family, with Suna and Young and their mother, whose name we don't know. And he announces that he's going off to go see the monster because these so-called politicians can't handle it. One of these so-called politicians being Yu Kuang Nam the father of this family yeah it's really rude (laughs) there's a lot of passive aggressiveness going on between ilu and suna yeah not the healthiest relationship no not at all so he runs off and young says i'm coming too so he just takes him along to go watch the scary monster and suna comes running after leaving the exasperated mother behind. Yeah. Again. Kind of like an aw shucks moment. Yeah. Again, she doesn't do much other than complain or worry. And I think next is my favorite scene in the movie for me because next we get all the shots of the reactions to Yongri. You see a lot of people fleeing just like you do in the Godzilla movies previously. But you also see a guy holding a giant wooden cross 
screaming, repent, sinners. Yep. We see some, I'm I'm calling them businessmen, people in suits at a restaurant, just gorging themselves on food, just shoving it in their mouths. It reminded me a lot of the scene from Spirited Away, where the parents are eating at the buffet, mm-hmm. at the spirit buffet, yeah. and turning into pigs. It reminded me a lot of that. They're just shoving food in their faces, and it's half of it's falling back out onto the plates. Absolutely. And the demand that the waiter bring them more food, and the waiter's like, you guys are crazy. There's a monster. We need to get out. And they just don't care. They just keep eating. Yeah. They basically say, what if he goes to the mountains where you're running? And yeah, that's I don't, that's not a good reason not to run. <laughs> and they show a bunch of 20-something to 30-something-year-olds all partying at some sort of club. One of them pours a beer over somebody else's head. Yeah, those dang millennials <laughs> don't know what to do about a monster. But I just love this. It's such a good social commentary in so many ways, even if it's a little oversimplified. I love apocalyptic movies where you get to see how different people respond to panic. Yeah, we'll definitely be getting a lot of that in some of the movies that we're going to be seeing. I I think that this is cool to see the Korean take on it. Yeah, it was really just an interesting perspective. Yeah. So Ilwu and Suna are running through the streets with Young holding his hand. Ilwu gets hit by some debris that goes flying, and Suna stops to help him up. And by the time they turn back, Young is gone. They don't know where he went. It, like, pierces his chest, too. He's bleeding profusely. From this boulder. Yeah. It's a sharp rock. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. There's an, a bit of an argument between the military representative and the politicians the military representative thinks that they should use missiles against yangri but the politicians are arguing that they would be worried that the missiles would damage more than they would help which is never a discussion you hear in these movies and they were worried that it would ruin one of the most important buildings of old korea to which the military representative responds we need to let go of Korea's past and look to its future, which if that doesn't sound pointed. Yeah. The building that they're referring to, in the commentary, they refer to it as the Southern Gate. I'm not familiar with the Southern Gate as a building. It sounds like from my little bit of Wikipedia-ing, again, I'm not super familiar with it. It sounds like there's maybe eight gates pointing in different directions and the this is the southern one and that these are like very very old important buildings in seoul and that it's one that he is that yangari is threatening but can we just talk about this byplay between the politicians and the military it sounds like they are setting up the military as almost power-hungry, quick to jump the gun. It's a brave stance to take if you are in an authoritarian country. He was the one who wanted to go straight to martial law immediately at the first sign of an earthquake, where the politicians seem almost too hesitant to act. They don't want to do anything that might hurt the architecture. Right. For fear of... Like, they're not willing to act because they think there's too many risks of acting, but then they just let this thing continue on. 
Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's it's you can draw parallels to the original Godzilla movie where we talked about how a lot of people blamed the government for keeping them in a war for too long. I don't know if that was the general opinion in Korea at the time, so I don't know if that's a fair connection to make, but it I can say any author, authoritarian government relies on its military and making a movie that says anything negative paints any military in a negative light you're you're being brave by doing that it's a brave stance to take so you know young is missing he's shown hiding in a sewer grate under a sewer grate and watching as yangri goes past yangri destroys it looks like a japanese building kind of almost looks like the diet building from the first Godzilla movie. That is that's a good eye. Very good. Yeah, that is in fact a Japanese government building that was built during Japanese rule in Korea. It was at the time a real building. It has since been destroyed because they basically decided, you know, History is important. It's important to keep historical buildings around, but this just represents too much negative history in Korea, and so they tore it down. But at the time, this was a real building that was around, and when Japan was occupying Korea, was in charge of Korea, it was the government building that they controlled Korea out of. And so the fact that Yongri, the first major building that he destroys is a symbol of Japanese colonialism, I think is a very pointed political statement. Which is interesting because then he very much does not damage the next building we focus on, which is this very detailed Korean-looking structure. Which is the Southern Gate that I mentioned. Oh, so that is the Southern Gate. That's the Southern Gate. And he does not destroy the Southern Gate, not because Yangari's a, a Korean patriot, but because two Koreans in a helicopter distract him. Oh, I didn't get that they purposely led him away. They led him away. So we have Koreans guiding him away from the important part of Korean history, but not keeping him away from kind of the part of Korean's history, Korea's history that we want to get rid of. They do get really close to him. I think they were probably 50 feet from his head. Yeah, they were very close. Doctors do not recommend getting so close to Yonkari's head. <laughs> Nine out of ten doctors. Exactly. These same people do also make the comment that he looks like he's slowing down, that he's appears slowed and is turning back. Yep. And... We're starting to wonder, wait, why is Yangari destroying the city? This is also your favorite shot in the movie where we get the just frontal view of the nozzle coming out of Yangari's mouth. Yeah, so maybe the filmmakers. So there's a lot of really good shots in this movie. I can see that. A lot of skilled filmmaking. And then (laughs) some novice mistakes. And then some novice mistakes, like maybe don't film your monster that has a nozzle in its mouth so that you can see the nozzle in its mouth. 
very clearly. It wasn't so, just a peek at it. There's a lot of shots where you can see it. Yongri then makes his way over to an oil refinery. And I was actually very impressed with their depiction of an oil refinery. I knew exactly what it was right away. Why would you know that? I just worked on one for a few months. It wasn't very long, but enough that I could pick out the, the buildings. Sure. At the oil refinery, Yongri rips the top off of one of the oil tanks, and he starts drinking from it as Yong watches from somewhere in one of the buildings nearby. Sure. That has access to the sewers. And the commentary pointed out, actually right around this point, I just remembered it, and the commentary pointed it out at this point, uh, Yongri and Young, they have like a connection the two of them like young likes youngery and their names are very similar and i wonder if that's on purpose youngery young i wonder if that's on i wonder it's possible yeah i don't know our cat has joined us in our blanket fort recording studio hoping to god he doesn't knock anything over last time he jumped on top of the blanket and collapsed the whole thing which we had to cut that out yeah it wasn't great so as young is watching as Young is watching Yongari drink from the oil tanker, he has the idea to go back underground into the sewers where the the main line can be turned off, I guess, for the oil going to the tanks. So he turns off the oil going to the tanks. <laughs> <laughs> is that your mischievous Young voice? Yes. And then watches as Yongari starts scratching for some reason after his tail knocks into a building that explodes. Yes. It's all very mysterious and weird. Young then runs to go back to his house where he finds Iluwu, Suna, and Young and Suna's mother, who are all freaking out, worried about him. He is covered in sewage. And <laughs> nobody seems to notice this at all. By the way, yeah. <laughs> he tells the three of them that he saw Yongri knock over this building that exploded and then start itching. So Ilwu has some sort of eureka moment and runs out of the building, followed by, again, Suna and Yong as the mother tries to stop Yong and then just doesn't. Yeah. Which is kind of inept. Doesn't try at all. They try to go to the oil refinery to see Yongri for themselves, but they're turned away by some military people that said twice that they're sending guided missiles to hit Yongri and they don't want to be around for that, which you can't even bring a cell phone on a refinery site, so sending guided missiles just seems like a very bad idea. But The fact that they say the same line twice is where you should know <laughs> we are missing some things in this dub. We are definitely missing information in this dub. So instead, the three go to the political building where Suna and Young's father is there with all the rest of the people in this meeting, and they tell him what they saw or what Young saw. The military person, who, again, is set up to be the jerk, says, how can you believe this eight-year-old kid? Still covered in sewage. Still covered in sewage. <laughs> in the middle of this political meeting. And all the father does is take out his handkerchief and wipe at his cheek. Yes. The military guy says, we need to, to hit him with missiles. And Ilwu instead says... You're going to hurt people. Why don't we lure him away now that we know that he likes to drink oil or fuel and then hit him? And the military guy kind of grumbles and 
but all the politicians take Ilu's side, so... Yeah, and I think they're setting up this politicians don't want to act and military guy wants to act too rashly. Right. Ilu has this idea that Yongri had a reaction to ammonia. I don't have a very good understanding of um, of oil refinery, but I would think they would have chosen something like sulfur. Yeah, I don't know why ammonia would be at a refinery. I don't know either. I don't want to pretend that that couldn't happen because I don't know. But I know for a fact that sulfur is prolific at refinery sites. Yeah, it's weird. Weird choice. But he believes that this is the key to defeating Yongri. They put their plan into action. They turn the fuel line back on and Yongri starts heading back towards the oil refinery. And his nose starts glowing for some reason. But they don't really explain that at that point. Or ever. Well, they do have it turn red again right before he shows a new power, but... That's true. Just not here. Yeah. Meanwhile, Young sneaks back into Ilwu's lab and steals the itching ray. Yeah. Which he then uses on Yongari as Yongari's drinking from the tank again. Well, no. Oh, he uses on Yongari when Yongari refuses to go tour- towards the fuel that they had opened for him again. And this then shoes Yongri out in that direction. The fuel is on fire. I guess there's already a fire going. And he inhales the fire. Mm-hmm. Which you said is very Gamera-like. It's, yeah. When we watch Gamera, we'll, we'll see this happen a lot. Just have him breathe fire and then put that in reverse. <laughs> it is a cool trick. Yeah. It's very clever. The missiles are preparing to be launched, and I'm going to call it the main four, the the bride, the groom, Yilwu and Suna, are all getting into a helicopter that they've loaded with ammonia compound. The precipitate of ammonia. I think that's a later nope, mixture. It's all a precipitate of ammonia. They shoot the missiles at Yongri and drop the ammonia on him, and then it starts to rain very suddenly with lightning flashes, and then it stops just as suddenly... And we don't know why. We were thinking that would be because the ammonia would get washed away, but nope, he's still itching. Yeah, don't have any idea why it rained. Yongri falls over, and everyone's celebrating. The politicians are shaking hands, very politician-y. And Yongri's dead. End of movie. <laughs> but then Ilwu goes back to his lab, and he's doing some experiments, and he thinks he has the mixture that will defeat Yongri, who's already theoretically defeated sleeping yeah don't know why some people think he's dead and some people don't meanwhile young sneaks up to youngery nobody watches this kid nope he has, he has no adult supervision adult supervision <laughs> at in all. fact they just encourage him to break into the lab and steal these experimental ray guns and so ditch the wedding of his sister and run off after his siblings as they go to investigate the monster. Apparently one way that one Korean film analyst has looked at this film is through the lens of masculinity. How all of the like super macho people are kind of incompetent. And really the most competent people are the ones who are kid and 
a scientist who doesn't really have his act together. Whereas the astronaut, who is the definition of masculinity, goes unnamed and doesn't really help at all. Yeah. And that this is happening during a time in Korea when masculinity was a very big deal. So I don't have all the facts behind that. I don't have, I can't read the paper on it because it's in Korean. Um, but I think that that's an interesting point. The, the idea that the kid is the hero and the kid is the most competent one is very fascinating to me because he's supposed to be like the, the future of Korea and all the people who are currently running Korea are not particularly competent. Not really doing anything. Yeah. So like I said, Yong is sneaking up to Yongri while he sleeps and shines this itching ray at him and wakes him up. Don't know why he did that. Because he thought it'd be fun. He's... <laughs> and Yangri's horn starts glowing and his eyes open and he stands up and he just starts itching again. But Yang thinks that this is hilarious and says, he's dancing. And they start playing the surfer music. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yangri quote unquote dances to a like surf rock version of the song Arirang which is a famous folk song in South Korea. So this is a song that pretty much everyone in South Korea knows. Um, and this is just like a weird surf rock version of it. While Young starts dancing along with him. Uh-huh. And he's just doing the twist while young is scratching himself because he's being tortured by a child. <laughs> and then, of course, the military come and grab Young because... Why are you within reaching distance of a giant monster? Uh-huh. I'm laughing and dancing. Yeah. Definitely within flamethrower distance. But Yangri, not dead. What? <laughs> Surprise! They start shooting him with missiles again. They bring in the tanks. They show a car driving through the streets towards him. And then he uses his horn beam. Yep, he's got a horn beam. Which just cuts the car cleanly in half. So this is really interesting. This movie was released in the same year as Gamera versus Gauss. Which Gauss has a beam that it shoots that looks and acts exactly the same as younger. Do they also cleanly cut things in half like cars? Yes. Where it looks like it was done with scissors? Yeah. It's weird. Because there's no way that they would have known they had. There's no way they would, they would have seen the Gamera versus Gauss. I wonder if this is just a trope at the time. I don't know of any monster before Gauss that did something like this. The fact that they both had this power that that same year is very strange. Convergent evolution. Convergent evolution. Gamera or sorry, Gauss and Yungri. <laughs> the title of my new paper. So again, obviously, obviously, the military not doing anything they're not helpful again meanwhile the big four bridegroom suna and ilwu go up into a helicopter with young to dump the new mixture on top of yangri the big four by which you mean not eiji subaraya <laughs> akira fukube tomoyuki tanaka and ishiro honda no these are my big four just because they don't all have names so it gets <laughs> a little tiring saying bride and groom okay but yeah they head up in a helicopter 
Yang Gri's fighting off some jet planes, cuts one cleanly in half again with his horn, and they dump their new mixture over Yang Gri, who falls over and it's it's a very sad drawn drawn out death scene he falls over he's flailing he gets himself back up to his feet he's itching and itching his eyes are drooping and he slowly collapses back down to his knees and then over into the water his tail kind of twitches in some spasms and then blood gets spread out into the water Uh uh-huh yeah i don't go with your theory i'm sorry it, I, it's not a theory. There's blood coming out of his anus. It is not coming out of his anus. It's just he's bleeding. They're doing the trope where a dead body is in water and blood comes out from it. But it just comes out of between his legs and tail. It could be he has a cut on his leg. I don't know. Maybe he scratched himself too hard. You're looking at it with rose-tinted glo- goggles. Rose-tinted glasses. Blood-tinted... Never mind. <laughs> It just seems a little bit of a torturous death for the tone this movie has set so far. They, you know, different countries have different standards. But meanwhile, the people in the helicopter are just laughing at this. They think it's hilarious. They think it's great. Young is a little sad, but kind of gets over it pretty quickly. Yeah. He asks them to stop laughing. They tell him almost condescendingly, oh, yeah, we, we feel bad, but we had to do it. Yeah. And again, the politicians are all shaking hands like they had so much to do with this. They did nothing. They just chartered the helicopter. The final scene shows some sort of event, some celebration is going on. We don't know what type of celebration. It's probably just celebrating the end of the monster. Sure, yeah. The press are there. They want to interview Yu Kwong Nam, the politician who says, well, I didn't do anything. Really, it was Ilwu. And Ilwu says, well, I didn't do anything. Really, it was Young. And those are both correct. <laughs> they are talking to Young. They're like, and you're only eight, right? And they ask him what his wishes are for the future. And he says, I wish for Suna and Ilwu to get married already. <laughs> and Very presumptive. <laughs> he understands why they had to kill Yongri, but he really wishes he was still here right now. And then everyone just laughs at him like, oh, you. So I believe in the... Uh, screenplay, it's actually made clear that Yongri is not dead. He seemed pretty dead to me. Yeah. He, Young makes it, he says something about wanting Yongri to be here and on an island for himself. He says something like that at the end. I don't remember exactly what he says. And in the screenplay, like, that Young is saying what happened, not a dream that he wishes had happened. So I guess they just barely didn't kill him. I don't know. It's messed up. What would they have done with him? He's just bleeding out in this river. Fly him to an island. I don't know. It's messed up. Go drop him off on Monster Island. Yeah. (laughs) He can go hang out with the others. Oh, and then we zoom out into space again. So there's one last little point I wanted to make, which is that you mentioned that South Korea would have wanted to make itself look wealthy at the time. You you had guessed that. <laughs> Shows you. One of us said that. Someone said, okay. You we, said that South we, Korea wanted to look wealthy at the time. We discussed. Sure. We discussed that South Korea wanted to look wealthy because it's like envisioning your goals, right? 
you put that you put that dream out there all of our heroes our family are all we've got a an astronaut the head of a team of space people yeah the head of a command center yeah a politician we've got a politician a scientist we've got a scientist some doting mothers uh-huh a very intelligent child and they all drive very nice cars and have their wedding at a space like a, a rocket launch pad they're all pretty attractive yeah so i think that this is also supposed to be like the ideal family and i think america was doing similar depictions around the same time the nuclear family trope yeah no i think you're right that was that was all i wanted to say oh you know who i never talked about who the director the director of this movie was kim ki duck obviously definitely he is a director best known for yongari obviously but he was one of the young directors leading the cinematic wave of the 1960s he directed 66 movies between 1961 and 1977. Dang, get it, Kim Ki Duck. He became known as this leader of genre film. And then he stopped directing and became a professor of film. And so he's an important director, but also he taught all the directors that came after him. So he's just an important dude. Uh, an important dude. When an important dude, he's... One of the most well-respected South Korean directors of his time. And he died in 2017. Born in 1937. Died in 2017. That's not what you're in Texas. Hmm? Born in 1934. He was born in 1934 and died in 2017. And then the music was by John Jung Kun. John Kun. Maybe is how you pronounce his name, who's a highly awarded composer in South Korean film. The music was very Twilight Zone. Oh, I was going to describe it as bland. It it felt a lot like the intro to the Twilight Zone, but then on loop through the whole movie. It was on loop through the whole movie. Yeah, I got real bored of it real fast. I am sure that John Jung Kuhn is a fantastic composer and that this is not the high point of his career. Yes, exactly. Yongari was played by Cho Kyung Min. Don't know anything about. I would say he did a pretty good job. He or she. Yeah. Did a pretty good job with it. There's a lot of good body acting. Yeah. Very emotive. The death scene was very sad. Mm hmm. Without any words. And while other people are laughing at it. Yeah. Yeah. So who who do you think you would recommend this movie for? Well. Would you? I think like we talked about, it's an important movie for South Korea. Sure. And I think there are good moments in it. Like I said, I really did like the the reactions of the people, the social commentary of it. I think it could fit very well in with the MST3K crowd. I'm shocked that this was never an MST3K. Especially with the dance scene. Yeah. Youngery doing the twist. Maybe they are just oversaturated with all the giant monster movies to choose from. No. Even when they did the reboot recently on Netflix, they added more giant monster movies. 
I think it's for those people who can have fun with a bad movie. Definitely. Which is definitely a set, a specific set of people. Definitely. And of course, kaiju completionists. <laughs> or South Korean historians. Okay. I, I think that's definitely one. Well, if you'd like to tell us how much you liked dancing to the Arirang if you watched the movie that we watched this week... We have an email. Kaijuislandpodcast at gmail.com. And we have a Twitter. At Island Kaiju. Our intro and outro are Manga Maniac by Olive Music. And as always, thanks for listening. And let's all fight bravely as a team. Punch, punch, punch. <laughs>